Sometimes it's hard to, you know, ask other people to change, but the changes do not start within ourselves and within myself and also the institution that I work with. Then it's just kind of maybe greenwashing. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. What you are hearing right now are the sound vibrations of a spider working on its web. It's a sound normally imperceptible to the human ear, but that does not make it any less real. This recent technological feat of capturing and recording the sound of a spider is just one of the many pursuits undertaken by the Berlin-based artist Thomas Saracino. Saracino is known for working with experts from the fields of science, engineering, and architecture, among others to create works that exist beyond the traditional bounds of the art world. These research-intensive, often groundbreaking installations and projects render visible our interconnectedness with one another and the ecosystems in which we exist. They've even earned him some world records. It's an ambitious undertaking for an art practice, and it has solidified him as one of the more impactful artists of his generation. For his first major UK solo exhibition, opening June 1st at the Serpentine Galleries in London, Saracino and his collaborators are moving beyond the walls of the museum, considering and including the ecosystem of which the museum is a part, from the royal parks just beyond the museum's walls, all the way to the real communities of Argentina, where people are fighting to stop lithium extraction in their lands, or to Cameroon, where spider diviners challenge our traditional ideas about knowledge. Saracino's living and breathing multi-species serpentine show, which is called Webs of Life, will delve into critical and urgent questions about how we as people coexist with other life forms and how technology intersects with the climate emergency itself. As the last of Saracino's works were being sent over to London, I had the immense privilege of sitting down with the artist in his bright and beautiful studio in Berlin, a workspace teeming with energy, ideas, works in progress, and a few eight-legged creatures. We spoke about his unique approach to art, about the power of meditation, the risks of artificial intelligence, and what one can learn from really listening and seeing in novel ways. I want to talk about your Serpentine show, but I think we should start with sort of where we are today. So we're like sitting together in your studio, which is a multi-story former factory. Yes, Akfa, where the color photography got more popular. Let's say it was always black and white and then uh, Akfa was one of the companies who make it more available and accessible and popularize the color photography. Okay, so this was a form of color photography studio yeah. in the sort of outskirts of Berlin, I yes. guess, officially. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. And you've been here for more than a decade, is that right? Yes, yeah. either much longer than me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, this is uh, your main office space and just yeah. next door to us is Spiders, which I'm... I knew that you have had spiders in your studios or such a central part of your work, and I was quite surprised to see them just existing in the space. They're not boxed into glass. They're yeah. standing actually on Club Mate crates um, yes. rather casually. So <laughs> yes. can you explain the ecosystem that's happening in there? Yeah, it's recognized. I mean, I, when you start to notice something, then you notice that everywhere you see spider web. You know, for me, it, it keeps surprising. And when people go to the exhibition, then... Hey, they call me and say, oh, I found a spider web in my home. It's in an artwork. Can you sign it? And so, well, uh, synanthropic animals, this means somehow 
they evolve and develop also with uh, human habitats. And so how what they do is plays a lot about this kind of human-made distinction between what is natural, what is not. We could think about that uh, nature starts always outside your home, but, but somehow also we should think that our homes is also their homes. Since I've li been living on the planet Earth for more than almost 200 million years, uh, or 300 million years, 270. And humans only 200,000, human, human sapiens. This, I mean, I think this is quite of an arrogancy to think that they live in our homes. While no, more or less biology said that for a species to know how to live in a place minimum should have been living for 5 million years. This means we're not even a third of a million years, while spiders 300 million years. Wow. This means it's recognizing a little bit that uh, they are pre-existing. And there are many cultures that still venerate them, and many cultures that still have a different relation. You don't, don't suffer sometimes the phobias, all these arachnophobias that many Western cultures suffer from. The show a little bit tried to kind of weave this connection, these webs of life, spider webs, cosmic webs, that somehow connect uh, or could reconnect, or somehow is, it gives space also to that culture who have not lost that link to help us the one who suffer from that phobia, to weave other relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know you've said before that spiders, their webs are not different from their bodies. It's yeah. an extension of their nervous system. Yeah. And as I've understood from what you'll be showing at the Serpentine and what you've showed elsewhere is you also make these web installations, which places humans in the center of a web. So yeah. can you speak a bit about what the metaphor is there for you and the significance that you want sort of humans to take away from that? Recently in New York, and the shed, we did an exhibition which mostly was the construction of a type of architecture where you could think that uh, sometimes concert halls or places to listening or to hearing are so much bounded by the human perception for the frequencies of what we could hear and perceive while, you know, every species lives in its own unveld. Hence, I mean, we build kind of a let's say, an auditorium for a silent concert, for a haptic concert. That's something that you could not hear, but you still can feel. Let's say you don't hear the earthquake, but you feel an earthquake. There's been sometimes very low vibration that still spiders are able to pick up. Let's say a human range, it goes from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, I think so. And you know that dogs hear certain frequency. Each animal have a certain uh, capacity to perceive and to sense the world through their own perception. In this case, you know, it's a little bit trying to think about how human also move them away from the center of, let's say, of this planet and maybe of the universe and try to think that we co-inhabit and we co-create spaces and we co-created senses of perception. Then people by entering on this huge web where we place uh, shakers. Shakers are uh, small uh, machines who vibrate a frequency very, very low. And then uh, people could lay down there, then the lights will go completely off because also spiders who weave webs uh, almost could not see. Even they still have some eyes, but they are very, very poor in vision. The one who weave webs. The one who do not weave web have very good vision. The jumpy spider have eight eyes and then they can see even a different world than what we see. This means we should get rid of our better than us as a comparison of what the world might be, seeing through and not seeing, because by that many times they don't see through eyes, but yes, perceive this vibration, no? Mm -hmm. This means all the time, I, I mean, this kind of uh, synesthetic mode of to understand that, uh, that the world is with by many, many people and not 
necessarily only people. I was playing around with the Arachnomancy yes, app that yes. you made for the 2019 Venice Biennial, where you made this audible. And I was actually quite touched because I, you know, I opened the app and looked at the map of the world. And just down the street from me, someone had uploaded a picture of a yeah. spider web. Yeah. You know, sometimes you feel that digital spaces can make us feel more alienated, but I actually felt like it was quite poignant to see all these people all over Berlin uploading these pictures of spider webs, which, as I understand, is your intention there is to make people sort of think about these cohabitants a little bit differently. Also part of the app, there's these sonifications. Can you explain? Oh, we can say vibrification. Vibrification. Because, sorry to interrupt you, you know, the vibration became audible. Well, the mobile phone have these capacity also to have a vibration modes. I mean, we speculate about how much technology is also, you know, not only thinking about like biodiversity, but also technodiversity has been also how certain technologies, when they are well distributed and not in the hands of few multinationals who profit from the data extractions and determinant of the many, this is a little bit of the speculation that we're doing. This means, yes, through this application, we turn spiders into source of consultations and oracles that somehow maybe in the future you may be able to exchange SMS through vibration mode. And the telephones will also not only help us to talk one to each other, but also to talk with other species. With all the precaution that also mobile phones somehow, if not well regulated by governments and by policies could really play a negative role. And this means the application also, it plays with the idea that you will be able to access more information, but at the base of it is that you need to find a spider web and a spider to be entered into dialogue. This means sometimes, you know, when we also work with Acute Art, with Daniel Birman, about the idea of augmenting the reality, was always and only with the condition that you also are in the presence of an alive animal, thinking about the phases of extinction of all the species, right? And it's, been, it's nice when you point out also that then you start to map these creatures uh, living in their houses also. <laughs> how do you make these vibrifications or how do you track them or record yeah. them? We have been working for many, many years, I think, more than 10 years on trying to develop different systems of how these vibration could be picked up. It's called the discipline biotremology is how animals communicate also with frequency ranges that might not be audible sometimes and require something like a solid medium for this frequency to pass from one source to another. And in that extent, uh, we invented a microphone, a very sensitive microphone who is kind of a piezo-modified microphone who have passed through many years of modification, modification, since there was not really an existing technology which will fit to pick up this very tenuous uh, vibration. We use a laser vibratrometer at the beginning, mm -hmm. very expensive, sophisticated, but was not really working. And then at the end, we came up with, uh, yeah, with new methods of being able to record that. And then we built up an archive of all different type of vibration. And then, you know, many universities around the world also became interested from the Max Planck Institute of the group, animal behavior to the MIT and to many universities. Some of the instruments that we have developed they have helped also science to hopefully understand better their own umwelt and their own mode of perception. Right, because you were one of the first to make a 3D model of a spider yeah. web, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It started a little bit with these analogies that you can read in many journals of astrophysics or cosmologists who, who when they try to describe the cosmic web, 
how the kind of the origin of the universe after the Big Bang galaxies are kind of weave or, or compose in a certain mode. One of the analogies that sometimes they try to explain, they said, oh, it's similar to a complex three-dimensional spider web. And I got curious because I always love also universe and planets and cosmos. <laughs> I came from Carl Sagan <laughs> and so forth also. And this means I thought, well, we have universe in our own homes. And this means I, I got very curious about uh, trying to understand it better. And for that extent, we find out in consultation with many arachnologists that uh, actually there was not a precise model of these very complex geometries, which start to go to computer tomography instrument with hospital and, and many, many places to try to see if we will be able to digitalize and to scan these webs to see if there is a similitude or not with a cosmic web. And we found out there was no machine or instrument. You know, when you do a CT scan of your brain, the thickness that it could measure is 0.6 of a millimeter, and the thickness of a spider web is much, much more thin. We then uh, came up with a solution with a technical university. Then, you know, we proposed them a system which also was quite innovative, and they helped us then to develop and to optimize it. And then MIT also came on board, and then we have PhD students advising them, and, you know, and we have been handing publishing in many very well-recognized um, scientific uh, magazine. When I was doing research ahead of our interview, of course, there's reviews in art forum, but then there's also in MIT Journal, a professor talking about his research with you. So yeah. you do straddle several worlds. You studied mm. architecture, you're an artist, um, you're working with scientists and arachnologists. Mm. I can imagine from your background that stepping into their world, it feels pretty fluid. Do you ever have any interesting experiences to share when you're bringing these people into the art world to kind of think through these questions in aesthetic terms with you? Yes, of course. It takes a lot of time. But I think so was always, lately was welcoming. We worked together with this group, Arachnophilia. And slowly, it got a little bit more interested also in, in other form of knowledge, something now called tech, traditional ecological knowledge. Where we start to dialogue with spider diviners, with other communities around the world, which are not considered scientific, but at the same time hold the type of knowledge which I think so it needs to really um, be understood and be recognized. By that extent, you know, in, in a kind of recent conversation, there was a group of science which they were trying to award the big prize on who is the first team of scientists who might be able to put in place a, a Google translator, so to say, for non-humans. And this means they invite the arachnophilia community, the one that I have been founded many years ago, because we might be candidate on that. And to that extent, you know, what I proposed at, at that conference was, um, why we don't talk about spider diviners in Cameroon, which have had hold the conversation with spiders for many, many thousands of years, and somehow still are not recognized as one of the persons or one of the cultures which somehow have had a Google Translator much before that Google have invented. And this means being able also to widen the spectrum of what science considers as possible source of knowledge and holding knowledge and becoming them also as possible winners of that prize. That's something which I think so is the things that I'm more investing time now and would be present also at exhibition at a certain time. I mean, sometimes, you know, they will not qualify spider diviners as a team of scientists who might 
have that conversation or others community in Africa also who talk with birds and, and the birds guide them where the honeybees are located. You know, there's a certain arrogancy of the comfort zone of certain disciplinary realm of acquiring still and colonize knowledges and only when they have put their mark then is recognized as, as something which is valid for a certain communities. And that's a little bit the struggles that we are now trying to work with arachnophilia and try to really widen these possibilities. Right. As you said, at Serbitan, you worked in collaboration with these spider diviners from Cameroon. Yeah. And you actually went there and saw the way that they work and they do this translation. Can you explain a bit about exactly what they're doing? I saw uh, Hans-Ulrich Obrist ask them a question and then yes. they walk into the forest and they speak with them. Yeah. And the spider diviners, which is called the practice Namdu, is a very ancient uh, form of consultation or forecasting the present, the past, and the future in ways that the wisdom of, uh, of another animal is taken into consideration. In the case, sometimes, you know, in Argentina, we slaughter animals to eat meat. But in India, you know, the cows are considered holy. Now, in Somia, in Cameroon, and in many other regions in Africa, uh, spiders are, are, are considered as a source of respect. And in this case, you know, the, many of the decisions that the village takes sometimes are consulted within together and made with the spiders. And in this case, there are spiders who live under the ground in a hole, and uh, you have to ask a question, and this question goes to this diviner, who his knowledge has been inherited, in this case, by his uncle, and since many generations have been passed through different people who live in the village. And at the end, he then translates that question into a vibration mode by beating a, a small um, a can which is on top of the spider. That vibration is transmitted to a, this vibratory language to the spiders. And then the spiders might come out from the hole. And on top of the hole where they live, they are placed um, cards which are made out of leaves with very precise incisions. And by the rearrangement of these cards, the spider divinely interpret the answer of the spider and then translate again to human language. Yeah, sometimes it takes uh, weeks or sometimes days. Yeah, it's a process of consultation, which, which I kind of adore. And when I went there, because I didn't know really how to relate with uh, their own form of knowledge. And in the case, uh, you know, after a few days, we've been with Bolo and with David Seidling, who have been in the village for more than, I think, so 20 or 30 years, visiting this very remote village. Bolo have said to us, I would really like that if you could build a webpage for us, that I could offer my consultation to the rest of the world, or at least the part of the world who have access to the internet. And that was the beginning of this conversation, which is already for over three years, where we have helped the community to build their own portal with their own IT and IP. And now this consultation could be offered by different people. And in this case, at a serpent, one of the first rooms of the exhibition, you see their own portal, their own webpage. And of course, there is an exchange of economies that if people ask a consultation, the beneficiary, of course, are the ones who hold that knowledge. Instead of documenting something that at the end will not be beneficial for their own community, in this case, it's really work hard around the project, which is based on their own demands. And is when the economy that it generates is really directly related to the community. And I think it's very important now when we think about uh, 
restitution, how we appropriate knowledges, how we still colonize. Uh, Biopiracy is sometimes a form of knowledge uh, around the world. Yeah, definitely. So are you going to also present actual spider webs at the Serpentine as well? Yeah. One of the first things we did is like visiting the Serpentine, we went to the basement where um, we found many webs and spiders. It's been where there is less human presence, usually spiders are more abundant. And this was a little bit the beginning of also thinking like, hey, can we recognize these pre-existing artists? <laughs> can we call them artists? Can we give them space also? Can we formulate a kind of a recommendation policy for the serpent and also that will allow these spiders to become more present. In this case, you know, how you clean services, don't bloom them away when they appear, give them a proper name, change your um, relationship with. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was kind of the beginning. This means we noticed many spiders on the basement and we I noticed many spiders also in the exhibition spaces coexisting with other uh, exhibition. Has been that was beginning a little bit of of seeing who who is at the serpent and which species of spiders are the serpent. And then working with Peter Yeager and our technology that we worked for many, many years, we start to map and we start to think, okay, what are all the species which are there? And then we thought also that some of the webs that have been weaved in Berlin will travel to London within the idea that also some of the spider living there will be able to weave webs on top of other webs, which usually is something which exists in, let's say, so-called nature. Right. So-called nature as if it's something separate from the interior of the Serpentine. I know there's been many challenges from many different angles to the museum's idea of sterility and being clean spaces sealed off from the world. And I think it's a very exciting time right now because people are challenging us. And you're you're one of them. You're also putting solar-powered panels on top of the building and uh, have turned off the air conditioning. I want you to explain your thinking behind that. But also just in general, I feel that um, so much of your work really challenges the museum's uh, capabilities. I mean, in Dusseldorf at the K21, you've built this net, which probably pulls at the building literally and also symbolically in lots of different ways. So yeah, how are you thinking through these limitations of museums? Sometimes it's hard to, you know, ask other people to change, but the changes do not start within ourselves and with myself and also the institution that I work with. Then it's just kind of maybe greenwashing, you know, it's like saying it's very simple for for others to change. And that was a little bit a challenge also of thinking like, can the Serpentine also adapt maybe to the rate of how art is presented, consumed and and exhibited? And that's a little bit like the biggest challenge because, you know, there are certain infrastructure, there are certain ways of seeing things that when we really try to change them, you face a lot of challenges. And this mean was was a great possibilities on the servant and really being keen to all the team and the staff, from the facility manager to the curator to Hans to everybody to really welcome this idea. Hence I mean we are very excited but also nervous because when people will arrive to the museum and they want to see something that might have been reading and you might be responsible also to communicate this message in the right way if it's not on or if it's half on or if um, part of the exhibition have entered into a sleeping mode because there is not enough solar energy. We face maybe certain discomfort or certain um, 
why I came all the way two hours coming from the other part of London and now I cannot see it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what we ask is, is really kind of becoming part of the exhibition in a way that the whole exhibition is kind of a performance that is not only played by the solar panels and the amount of energy that they may produce and they become alive of parts intrinsic, but also the visitors, which are not anymore visitors, but are an active participation into the making of what will be kind of a, a more resilient uh, web of life. That is the title of the exhibition. By really contributing the change of behavior and not the changing of the climate, what all activists are, are telling us, no, to a certain extent. This behavioral change is something that is in the core of the exhibition, no? And the shifting also by recognizing that we are not alone in the world, but that the spider also might enjoy if the AAC had been switched off, but because the climate, it became much more suitable for themselves to weave their own webs. And this means when you change the climate of the institution also, you contribute to maintain a climate in the planet Earth for the majority of inhabitants of this world who suffer the consequence of perpetuating a certain violence in the planet, which is also at base also a certain wave of uh, exhibiting and doing art. It's really kind of go hands in hands with things with the other one. I'm very happy that, that we invite not only human, but also, you know, we're in the middle of a park, you know, we have to say in the Kingston Garden or the Royal Park. Believe it or not, monarchy is still celebrated. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, certain rhythms and traditions, it seems so at odd with the kingdoms of life. Look how biologists still call them, right? And as I mean, we play a little bit around of the opening hours for the birds, which might enjoy the sculpture, which has a roof which are not the same opening hours of the humans. Now, when you start to broaden the spectrum of who are the participants of this web of life exhibition, then you really have to start to shift that the doors not necessary are for the size of the humans, you know. Some part of the exhibition are only being able to enter by children's. Hence, I mean, um, an art critic might need to send children's to be able to report what the exhibition looked like. Or we might be to ask birds how they feel when they come all the way from Africa during the breeding season without visa, avoiding Brexiters, and now the serpent have become hotels for bees and for other encounters. I mean, it plays a little bit also with the politics and how humans have divided the world, which somehow it seems not really helping times that the majority of people are living. Yes, for the few, yes, but not for the majority. When did you become concerned with the environment as you are now? Like, was there a particular moment where you feel like you were maybe became an activist? Do you see yourself as an activist? Is that even the right term? <laughs> We're so used to become expert in a certain discipline. Uh, you know, science knows that type of knowledge. Art know another type of knowledge. Activists might have their own way of acting and, and communicating. What I think so for me the more interesting is being in between, right? This form of knowledges and not be really knowledgeable about anything, but knowledgeable about the limits of every discipline and how much uh, lately, you know, you could see that there's a, a global emergency on re-understanding the comfort zone of every discipline, how they are acting. 
in that extent, you know, I'm trying to avoid uh, sometimes uh, what I'm doing or what we are doing as a plural, because sometimes we anthropomorphize, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, spiders are artists, as I'm, I'm an artist myself. But still, arts, the discipline somehow, which somehow it keeps, He's so flexible in to that extent when we talk with kind of the people who have a more open mind of, un of understanding art has something that it could be keep challenging fields of knowledge and disciplines. And to that extent, yes, um, I'm interested into that. Just to sort of like circle back into the past a little bit more, I know you've described yourself as a citizen of the earth, so I don't want to get into biographies too much, but it is quite interesting that you were born in Argentina and you were raised in Italy and then you ended up in Germany. Could you explain maybe whatever comes to mind of individual experiences in these places or that trajectory and how it kind of formed you as an artist? Yeah, no, mostly is um, wanting to belong to maybe a certain group. And then at that age, when I was a kid, people were, but you're, you know, when I was living in Italy, but you're not an Italian, you're an Argentina. And then I go back to Argentina, you're not Italian, you're not, you know, and then back and forth with the feeling of not belonging to maybe a certain country or a certain group. And my have shaped also that problem or opportunity on trying to understand that maybe that's also a problem in itself, right? not having the flexibility to also being able to embrace other forms of being. This means, yes, it might have been formed as a young age and how my parents also grew political. You know, in Argentina was a dictatorship period and for ourselves, uh, my family was not allowed to live in Argentina. We were being forced to live in exile. In this case, luckily, my father had an Italian passport and from the jail, we were kicked out in to Italy, and then when the democratic government came back, then we were allowed to go back to Argentina, and then they moved it back. Has been, you know, there might have been a lot of uh, of struggles of belonging from which community you are part. And to that extent, you know, I keep challenging, you know, of this security of all the time, a group, a family, a discipline, a country might give you. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, also, which is beautiful, uh, at the same time, you know, facing today the six mass extension or, or the climate emergency or the climate injustices, what are the requirements today that we need to kind of weave to have a sense of togetherness that certain geopolitics today on the planet, it seems outdated to the necessity of how much, you know, the interdependencies that one half to each other, right? We understand when the bees disappear, the whole ecosystems might collapse, right? And there are these triggers of the planetary boundaries that are so much necessary. And still, we are very ignorant about that, right? Hence, I mean, there is a certain here you know, ecology that sometimes is not so much obsessed on the animal itself, but the entire ecosystem, how they are codependent one to each other. And I think, so. you know, we need to advance a little bit uh, in that direction mm. uh, in political levels, no, and many sides. And, you know, the part of the Serpentine exhibition is exactly about how much energy transitions that are possible in certain parts of the world by adopting solar panels or lithium, so the green energy transition from fossil fuel to electric, uh, it might be really affecting other parts in the world. In this case, the community of Salinas Grandes in Argentina, where a huge deposit of lithiums are found. 
and that extent, you know, uh, you know, people might be invited to sign petitions, had uh, to find pacts and manifestos for the just energy transition for the majority of people of planet Earth. Mm-hmm. This means it's a real collaboration by many lawyers, activists, anthropologists, sociologists, and, and many who have contributed actively onto the thinking of his exhibition. Can you explain your concern with lithium extraction? I feel like not enough people understand yeah. what lithium is and why we should be worried about the mass uh, production of it. And the current system, the way how lithium is extracted in Argentina and in Chile and in Bolivia, what it, it requires is a lot of water, water mining, what some call it. And it means to extract one ton of lithium, you need two million liters of water. And it means uh, the place where you find lithium, called a lithium triangle, some they call it the white gold, are places which are very desertic. They are very fragile ecosystem, which depend a lot on the water that exists there, but it's, it's very scarce also. It means when they arrive, these could huge multinational companies and they start to extract lithium, they pump up under the soil a huge quantity of water for purifying the lithium. In this case, all these places where, you know, well, the Vicuñas live, with the Jamaf bees, with all the inhabitants of these territories that form. Much more than 500 years when America was discovered in the colonial period started, all their life it's affected. What we have been doing is uh, opening up the dialogues and, you know, it's more than seven years that we have been exchanging different ways of life, no? Because what they really show us that you could live without lithium. You could live without a hyper-consumeristic world. There is no planet B. There is not enough resources for the greedy and the hyper-capitalist consumption rhythms that the global north is uh, putting pressure on the global south. And this means it's really this, what Moira Mijan sometimes says, we don't ask the property of the land, we just ask the rights to maintain another lifestyle, right? There is a really kind of a injustice on how the global north is trying to impose a certain lifestyles, which we know there are no resources in the world which will maintain that lifestyle, on to people which exactly are demonstrated that they could live in harmony and in certain relationship with the planet, spider diviners in this community, instead of aiming to try to understand their own way of living, we kind of keep uh, imposing extractivist modes, not only on minerals, but on data and on some of these, what we call also bioparacin in Brazil and Amazons mm-hmm. and many other ways. There is this clash of civilization, of these cultures. And what is pretty striking is when you think that between five or six percent of the population of the world sometimes considered indigenous or First Nation people, are the ones who are able to maintain and preserve 80% of the biodiversity of planet Earth. This is a trouble, no? Because that population are exactly the one who knows how to live within the web of life. The exhibition of the servant and it's kind of pay honor or try to amplify their own voices, no? And try to put in place uh, uh, the understanding that Certain lives in the global world are really unsustainable and there are no mineral or resources which will be enough for that type of... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is a huge inequalities, no? Also. And this means um, how we deal with that. Not enough lithium to power all the Teslas that everybody in the North seems to want. Because also who could afford to have that transition 
is the one who do not need it also because they will add another Tesla car to already other three cars that they have in their own family. It's not benefiting the one that maybe are uh, also more in need, right? It keep perpetuating certain violence to certain territories. As someone who lives in the global north, um, you know, you have a... Myself. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, consume so, and live in a standard which is not up to... Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I'm sure you've thought about this. Like, so on a day-to-day level as an artist with a studio, which seems to have maybe, how many people are working here? 50 people or so? Yeah. How do you work towards sustainability whilst, you know, having this career and moving around the world with these shows? I'm sure it's something that your team and you are thinking about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. I think so. We we start with exhibition. It's very hard to communicate or to do something if you don't embrace it yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It starts by, in the rooftop of that building, there are all solar panels. And I mean, I can show you, uh, let's say, how much energy we are producing at current stage. Live feed? Yeah. And I mean, so you're look, opening your phone to show yes. me. <laughs> I mean, now we are producing 28.2 kilowatts hour. It's from early in the morning, and this now is fully sunny. Okay, wow. Yeah. I mean, and today is quite sunny. When it's a little bit less sunny also, uh, it produces less. What we are trying, the same what we do at the Serpentine, what we are trying to think is like, a, can we alter our way of working that depend on the sun? Can we find this equilibrium of energy production and energy consumption? And this means we also shift the working hours also. We're not asking only the Serpentine or the visitor or participants of this exhibition, but it have started much early also within ourselves and the working habits of ourselves being together under this roof. And it's been, you know, sometimes in uh, we shift when it's summer, we try to come early to work, leave after and try to really work around the clock in relation with the sun and the energy production. The other one is also we have planted, um, I don't know if you see it outside, some boxes where we try to produce our own food, vegetable, tomato, salad, I'm trying to self in, in a personal level that also will kind of in, it became kind of a performative part of the exhibition. I spent too much time on my mobile phone. I have a kind of an addiction. I go to bed and I watch the news and I wake up and I watch the news again. You know, a couple of years ago, I started to practice more and more meditation. Then I went then to a place uh, to practice something which is called Vipassana where for 10 days you are in completely silence, you cannot talk with anybody, you are not allowed to read, you cannot have books, you cannot write, and you, of course, you don't have a mobile phone. And these have helped me a lot, start to see and perceive things which I have never seen before. And I thought like, well, I, there's an addiction on me on how I'm living uh, this life, right? And ignoring a lot of things which happen. It's been at a serpent and then I start to get in contact also with a community which suffered also from not only about addiction of screen time, but also you hold in your pocket a piece of lithium, which belong also to community which are being disrupted, no? Has been at the exhibition, at the Serpent, we thought like, well, why not to invite participants of the exhibition while they see the exhibition to enter without their mobile phone? Has been, we have put it a cabinet in the entrance, and if you don't leave your phone, you are not able to see the exhibition, part of it is a little bit like a change of behavior also that I'm asking to change myself. And I'm asking and inviting also 
people who might come also, what it means to see a show without taking pictures before you have seen it. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you take a picture, somebody else is seeing before yourself because this big data, this artificial intelligence, it seems is really affecting the way we see and we perceive things and how things are distributed. It's, for me, is the change that I'm trying to embrace within myself, within my studio, is an invitation also that, you know, have been very beneficial for me. And I hope so that will be beneficial for other people. That's incredible. I mean, I, w I was thinking, you know, you have these immersive, you know, air quote, whatever immersive really means, installations that people s sit within and they, it's of course, these sorts of installations are often um, very easy to take a selfie in and that sort of, that part, of, is that frustrating on some level when you feel like your work gets caught in this kind of virality? Uh, this time will be hard because you are not, you don't have phone to take pictures. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> But, um, no, I think so, you know, we have written a, a couple of sentences which are nice. Screen time is also an addiction. Scroll, stroll, responsible. Your memory card might be full. Cloud storage, your ancestral cachet. Don't accelerate your own amnesia. Digital step also leave footprints. Parental mode isn't just for kids. Treat carefully. Active irosin mode. Health has no backup generator. Switch on power saving mode together. Technology need to be world changing, not world ending. Attempt the impossible together to change Earth future for the better, for all. Low battery for a longer life. Your phone might die, the birds will keep calling you. These sound like mantras almost. Yes, a broken screen is not a broken iPhone. Demand the right to repair. Join the movement against planned obsolescence. Mm. It's a little bit like a, a critique for my own <laughs> addiction, my own time. You know, you got your screen broken and you change it again and you buy another phone and, mm -hmm. and the rights of the repair and how the European Union also is not following the rules. How even companies today are saying like, look, AI is dangerous. Laws and policies are not able to deal with the, with the speed, how technology in the hands of the few with uh, monopolies that have been built, bypass any democratic system, are really disrupting the whole system of democracy and what, what we have voted. We have seen it, what happened with the Brexiters, how Facebook have manipulated information. We have seen in the United States how Trump's disseminated fake news and so forth. Mm. You know, when we talk about the web, it's not, not necessarily only the spider web, but it's, it's hopefully be a metaphor also about uh, the different web were caught within the digital webs. It's interesting you bring up artificial intelligence. Um, some people are very optimistic about it and see technology in general as an extension of the natural world, if we're going to make those distinctions anyway. But you sound concerned. Are you playing with that technology in your studio at all? Um, do you have any interest in it? Or do you feel like it is just something that is heavily corporatized at this point? You know the sentence, technology world changing, not world ending. I borrowed from a text that I read. Technology in itself sometimes, you know, it's, it's the way how it's distributed, the way how it's used, the way of who owns that technology that then later it becomes something which might be very detrimental for other people. Has been, you know, a knife, you can cut an apple, but you can kill a person, right? Hey, weapons in the United States, you see, it is better not to have weapons in the hands of public. But we will think 
oh, you know, the energy transition with uh, when it goes to a certain addiction to minerals, sometimes we forgot to talk also a much more fundamental part of the problem, mm -hmm. what is justice and who have access to, to certain technologies and who benefit from that technology. This means, to that extent, I think so, uh, you know, when we work with Irosin, when we work, when we do all these scientific contribution, we are very careful also to work with all the legal framework which allows also others to copy, reproduce, you know, with a creative commons, most of the pictures and the films are based on, on the biggest CCB4, which is the one who allows you to, yes, mention, to reproduce, and allows others to make use of that information. And we work also with, you know, with these sculptures which are able to lift up and then we then propose new modes of flying or, or planetary mobility. Also, we make sure that are accessible and not are patented for the benefit of the fuse. It's really working on, on the legal frameworks also of how that contribution that each of us made also need to be accompanied within kind of a wider scope of how then later are benefiting a certain part of society. Right. So as I understand it, like there's nothing inherently evil or good about a technology. It just becomes maybe evil or good depending on how it's yeah. used by humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, it seems certain technology, it could really benefit the majority of people if they will not be out there. I mean, how much we talk about uh, atomic energy and atomic weapon, because we know that certain part of human psychology are really not able to deal with, with a certain part of some human behaviors for a certain part of some human population. We all have, have hope that the internet will bring more justice, that information will be free, that uh, will bring more equality, that the world will be more accessible. But what we have seen is a race, and now with a, during the pandemic, of more inequality, of the wealthiest become more wealthiest. And this means that, you know, just 36 families in the world have the the economic power of more than half a percent of the population of this world has been these certain levels of inequality and holding power and economical power is is never have been seen before on the planet Earth. And I think so is by also the use of certain technology, right? The pandemic was not equally affected everybody on Earth. Everybody used to say, yes, well, everybody is subject. Well, s some people have really made their, um, their economies thrive like never before seen in this world. Yeah, some people did really well in that time. And I think a lot of private jets were still flying yeah, in between yeah. countries while, quote unquote, yeah. everyone was in yeah. lockdown. It will take me two days to arrive to London. I think so this time I'm going with a train. Oh, good for you. And, and then because of the Brexit also, it seems there is a lot of delays on the connection and stopping the borders. Remember that only 80% of the whole population of the world have never taken a plane. 80%. As you know, there's only 20% of, of the people on the planet who fly on an aeroplane. But sometimes we think what well, there is only one way of flying. And you know, what, what we show in the movies also try to think that we are all flying on something which is called, maybe the indigenous community in Argentina or the Andean culture call it Pachamama, where back Mr. Fuller might call the spaceship Earth in a kind of more technocratic way of thinking. But you know, the analogy of flying, when we think about the aerosene as an epoch of possibility of, of a name for change. It's kind of remind us about 
these planetary journeys that we do every day around ourselves and around the sun once a month. Are you hopeful? I mean, you know, I think that a lot of artists who might be working and thinking about the climate emergency and, ma- and the threat of mass extinction, it can drum up a lot of fear in people. And I mean, especially when you read this pure data, it almost can paralyze you with the hugeness of the problem. Um, and yet you strike me as a person who has a lot of optimism in some way. Is that Was that an accurate reading? And I think so there's a lot of business of people who hold the power to keep saying narratives that paralyze people because it's a business for them also. The inability of people to try to think radical change is something that's possible because it's a huge profit. You know, misinformation is a huge profit for huge uh, companies. But yes, I, I, I'm a more hopeful person is what it keeps me up every morning. <laughs> it would keep me having not necessarily nightmares every night, but keep dreaming. And when the dreams are shared, then I think it give me more energy and, and more energy to keep moving in the right direction because sometimes modernity has brought us also about a certain way of moving us, which it seems not very sustainable on the way we have been doing things. has been, yes, there's a lot of reconsideration of how we, yeah, we work together. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being on yes. Art Angle today. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Carolyn Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.